0: Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Jesus was preaching in this house. The house was just brimming full of people. In fact, it was so full they couldn't get through the door. And all of a sudden there's a commotion that goes on up on the roof and he looks up just in time to see Four men literally tearing the roof off the house. And they let their paralytic friend down on a pallet right at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you'll remember the story, the Bible says that Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, what? Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, what did he say? I want you to look up Mark 2, verse 5, and I want you to see what he had to say to this man. Okay, in Mark 2, verse 5, it says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your faith has made you whole. Is that what he says? Okay, he said, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not exactly what we would expect, because this was a man that needed healing, he needed deliverance desperately, and here Jesus was talking to him about forgiveness. But well, we're going to find out that we absolutely cannot separate one from the other. Now, we're going to be talking about forgiveness tonight, and I really don't want you to turn your spiritual ears off because sometimes we get to think, oh, I've heard so many teachings on forgiveness. But as I was doing this study and I wrote down what the Lord said, the Lord spoke to me and said, the word forgiveness may be commonplace, but the message is not. In other words, we've used that word and we've heard a lot of teaching. In fact, every other sentence that we make in in the Christian world, we're saying something about forgiveness. But God is showing us today that we haven't even scratched the surface in being able to understand what all is involved in the God kind of forgiveness. Now, we've been studying faith, we've been studying deliverance, we've been studying healing for years now but we still haven't had the breakthrough in any of these areas that we'd really like. And so this lesson now is not going to just be a key, you know, to healing. It's not going to just be a key to answered prayer, but I believe that it is a foundational link to having our prayers answered. Now I want you to look at the rest of this story. In verse 5, Jesus seeing the faith of these men, said to the paralytic, "'My son, your sins are forgiven.'" And there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your pallet and walk? "'But in order that you may know that the Son of Man "'has authority on earth to forgive sins,' "'he said to the paralytic, "'I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home.' "'And he arose and immediately took up the pallet, "'went out in the sight of all, "'so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, "'saying, we have never seen anything like this.'" Okay, what was the manifestation now that came from this man's sins being forgiven? Okay, the manifestation, of his forgiven sin was the fact that he was healed and he was delivered. Look at verse 10 again. It says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus saying, in order that you may know that I have authority, that's why I'm going to say take up your pallet and walk. See, the proof that Jesus had authority to forgive sin was in the healing. And healing and forgiveness, now, they're inseparable. Now, last year, right before we went into the summer, we had a whole Bible study on personal forgiveness. We talked about how vital it was to learn how to receive the God kind of forgiveness. And we also talked about what all was involved in true repentance and, and true forgiveness. And we found out that when God forgives, He doesn't just forgive the sin, but He forgives the guilt and He forgives the consequences. Now, that was a pretty comprehensive Bible study, so if if you didn't hear it, it'd be worth your time to get the tape. Well, we're going to start a two-part series tonight on healing, but we're going to look at the other side of that coin. We're going to be looking at the giving out of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness was as much a part of the ministry of Jesus as healing was. In fact, forgiveness is at the very core of Christianity. One of the biggest miracles that you'll ever find in Christianity is the forgiveness and the healing that comes from forgiveness. Literally, we're going to find that every single time that healing comes forth and forgiveness comes forth, there is a miracle that takes place in the spiritual realm. We're going to find a miracle takes place when we receive forgiveness from God, but there's going to be a miracle that takes place every time we give that kind of forgiveness out. Now today, we're going to center in on two aspects of the kind of forgiveness that takes place when we're reaching out to that person. One aspect is going to be external and one aspect is going to be internal. We're going to find out that there's going to be a healing explosion that takes place, a miracle explosion that takes place every single time that we decide to forgive somebody else. And that's what I'm wanting us to look at. Now, I want us to understand this miracle that takes place And I want us to get it so much down inside of us that we never, ever again toy with unforgiveness. That is so dangerous when we toy with unforgiveness in any area of our life. And so the whole objective of this Bible study is for us to see that this miracle explosion takes place. Every time we forgive, that explosion goes out and comes in at the same time and it creates, literally creates a miracle inside of us and inside that other person. Now, because of that miracle, then we need to understand everything God has to tell us on this subject. We're going to find out that a lot of times when we're unforgiveness, it's in a very subtle way. And so we want to find all those subtle ways in which we're unforgiving, so we can get all that out of our life. Now, the reason that I taught on being personally forgiven by God first is because we have to experience God's kind of forgiveness before we're ever going to be able to forgive. In every area of the gospel, you can look all through the Word of God and you're going to find that every time it's first internal and then we're able to put it out externally. We have to receive in before we can give out. Next week, we're going to look at it from the external. But this week, I want us just to concentrate on the benefit that comes to us as a believer every time we're willing to forgive. I'm going to give you four miracles or four benefits that our willingness to forgive brings to us personally. And I think you're going to find out that these four things are going to make it worth your time never to toy with unforgiveness again. Now we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be looking at the parable of the unmerciful slave to get the first two benefits of forgiveness. So if you'll turn to Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus has called his disciples together and he's giving them the model prayer. He's giving them a prayer outline here. In verse 9 he says you're to pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This model prayer covers every facet of prayer that you can think of. Any kind of prayer you wanna pray, it's in this prayer outline. And then we notice in verse 14 and 15 that he reiterates one thing out of that prayer outline. Now the only thing in the entire model prayer that he repeats is what he has to say about forgiveness. He says, if you're willing to forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you're not willing to forgive, you won't be forgiven. I want you to think just a minute. What does that mean? Think about what does it mean when it says, if you're not willing to forgive, you won't be forgiven. Does that mean that we can't even be saved if we don't forgive? Have you ever thought about that? I started meditating on that, and I thought, Lord, does that mean if I'm not willing to forgive that I can't be forgiven at all? And so I decided I'd go to Dyke's Bible because he does a commentary on every single scripture in the Word of God. And I thought, well, I'm interested to find out what Dyke has to say about that. He even goes into so much detail that he'll find words and he'll tell you how many times those words have been used throughout the Word of God. But when I got to the Dyke's Bible, I found out that he had absolutely nothing to comment on that verse 14 and 15. When he came to verse 14 and 15, he skipped right over it and went to verse 16. So I went to the NIV study Bible, and I found out they made no comment. In fact, every commentary that I looked in made no comment on that verse. I decided that what God's wanting us to do, he's wanting us to let that verse speak for itself. If we're willing to forgive, we'll be forgiven, and if we're not willing to forgive, we won't be forgiven. It's pretty plain. I, I think all these scholars are saying, hey, there's nothing I can add to this. There's, there's nothing that I can explain. It's as plain as it can be. But you know, as I went on through the Word of God, I found that as I looked up all these scriptures on forgiveness, I found that Jesus himself had written his own commentary on this verse. Look over in Matthew 18, 23. Now this is the parable of the unmerciful servant. And basically what it is, it's Jesus' commentary on those scriptures there in Matthew 6. In verse 23 of Matthew 18, it says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. I want you to notice how he settled accounts. Because when we find out how this king settled accounts, we're going to be finding out exactly how God settles accounts with us because this is a parable showing us the kingdom of heaven. It says in verse 24 that when he had begun to settle accounts, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about $10 million in our money. Keep in mind that the buying power in that day and time was a lot more than the buying power today. So in verse 25 it says, And since he did not have any means to repay... His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in order that repayment might be made. Now it was customary back in that day and time for the man and his entire family to be sold if he owed a debt and couldn't pay it. But in verse 26, the slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. Now this king knew that he couldn't pay that. He knew there was absolutely no way. So the way that the king settled that debt was to forgive it. There was no longer a debt owed. Now there's a real message here having to do with how God settles the account with his servants. See, we're going to find out that every account that we have is bigger than we're able to pay when it comes to God. But when we ask, like he did there in verse 26, when that slave prostrated himself before God and cried out for mercy, we're going to find then that verse 27 is God's way of settling accounts with us. It says that when he prostrated himself, and in verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and he released him and he forgave the debt. You know, if we didn't go any further than that, that would be shouting ground. We could just stop right there. But I think it's interesting that he doesn't stop there. And most of the time, this is what the Lord showed me, is that most of the time we stop with verse 27, and we're so busy praising God and being so excited over what God has done for us that sometimes we forget to realize that he wasn't through talking. See, after God settled the accounts vertically... The parable didn't stop. It wasn't over. That parable all of a sudden changes and it starts taking in our horizontal relationships. We can't have one without the other. We can't have that vertical forgiveness without then going into our horizontal relationships. So immediately, without taking a breath, he goes right on in verse 28 and it says But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that was just a few dollars, less than a day's wages. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay me back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He did exactly the same thing that the unmerciful slave had done. But the unmerciful slave was unwilling however, but he went and threw him in prison until he could pay back all that was owed. All right, I want you to think about the pickiness and the small-mindedness here. I think that's the part that is the most disgusting because we find that the very thing that he did, he couldn't tolerate in somebody else. There's a principle involved right here in this verse. We're going to find out that a lot of times what a person is most unforgiving over or most condemning of in another person is oftentimes going to be one of two things. Many times it'll be a weak spot in that person, a weak place in themselves, or there's going to be times when it will be a place of pride. In other words, there's times when it'll be something that they hate in themselves, so they point it out in other people. Or it may be that they're proud of the fact that they're, quote, above that kind of behavior, and so there's a sense of pride there. Now, I want to give you an example of someone being unforgiving of a weakness in someone else that they have in themselves. Years ago, we knew this couple, and from the very early, early years of their marriage, this man had taken care of his sick wife. She was sick for, oh, probably at least the first 10 years of their marriage. And he helped her through one physical and emotional crisis right after another, all through their early married life. Finally, she started getting well, but then she became totally intolerant of the emotional crisis that her husband began to experience. And I realized it's easy for us to despise in someone else what we don't like in ourself. You know, it's very common in counseling to run across this pattern that we see here in the unmerciful slave. This unmerciful slave could not see that the very thing that he was condemning had just been forgiven in his own life. So in verse 31, then when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and they reported it to their Lord. Then summonsing his Lord, he said to him, "'You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt "'because you asked me. "'Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, "'even as I had mercy on you?' I think that's a real clue even as I, God is saying, even as I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed. Now God is not the tormentor. He's not the one that tortures. Romans 1, when you look there, we find out that because of the hardness of men's heart, it says that God finally gives us over to the choice that we've made. And that's exactly what happened here. This unmerciful slave chose to be unforgiving so the king gave him over to the choice that he had made. Okay, what are the tormentors? We're going to find that there is a literal progression of torment that comes from unforgiveness every single time. Now there's some other sins in our life that aren't necessarily that tormenting in the physical and emotional realm. But with unforgiveness there are always the tormentors that come in. Unforgiveness will always open the door. If it's left there long enough, it'll open the door to bitterness. Finally, there'll be anger and temper and resentment, or even retaliation. And when that's left there long enough, it will eventually put the body into sickness every time. So we're going to find out that every single thing that evolves from unforgiveness always has this tormenting quality. And unforgiveness is what opens us up to the enemy's torment. And then in verse 35 it says, "'So shall my heavenly Father also do to you "'if each of you does not forgive his brother "'from your heart.'" So we see here that Jesus is referring back to that same statement that he had made after the model prayer. This parable is really Jesus' own commentary on the verses 14 and 15 after the model prayer. Now I'm gonna give you a parallel. Every single one of us have sins that make us guilty Some area before God, every one of us. Sometimes it's motives that are wrong in our life. Sometimes it's very obvious sins in our life. Sometimes it's just a sin of neglect where we know to do something and we just don't do it. And God's told us and we've ignored him. Sometimes it's sins of complacency or compromise. Sometimes there's just the sin of taking a lower road than that which God has for us. But every single one of us have areas in our life where we've missed it. And yet we find that God is more than willing to, to forgive us. When we repent and prostrate ourselves before him, he's willing to forgive us no matter what we've done. And every one of us have found ourselves in the shoes of this unmerciful servant who had the king him the $10 million debt because we've been forgiven by God of a debt that's bigger than we could ever possibly have paid. And the penalty of that debt that we owed is debt. We were destined to die, but God chose to settle the accounts by forgiving that sin. Now this puts us in the shoes of that unmerciful slave when the king forgave him the $10 million debt. But just like we couldn't stop after that verse 27, we need to realize that we're still in the shoes of that unmerciful slave. We can't stop with that vertical transaction. We have a choice to make just exactly like that unmerciful slave had a choice to make. Now, there are debts that are owed to us. There are wrongs that have been done to us, people who have hurt us. Every one of you have people who have rejected you, who have cheated you at one time or another, who have deceived you. We all have things where people have hurt us. Some of those sins have not been committed against us personally, but it has still angered us when we think about them, you know, when we see injustices that have been done. It's been kind of like a a burr under our saddle, you know. And and we can go out and grab our fellow brother by the neck, and we can demand him to pay all by being judgmental and critical and unforgiving, or we can forgive just exactly like we've been forgiven. Because, see, it's a choice. And so we're standing in the shoes of that unmerciful slave, and God is waiting for us to make the choice. Now, if we're unforgiving, I don't care how justified we may be, we will not escape the tormentors any more than that unmerciful slave escaped the tormentors. The Bible's clear on that. We're to forgive in proportion as we've been forgiven. So we're going to find that God's forgiveness and man's forgiveness are connected. They're hooked together. They're forever hooked together. Now, it doesn't mean that God is threatening to punish us by paying us back in kind. That's not what this is saying. Jesus is not saying that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven because God is going to cross his arms and say, well, if you're not going to forgive, I'm not going to forgive you. That's not what it is. Jesus is stating a law here. He's stating a fact that we cannot escape. See, the law of sowing and reaping governs everything in the spiritual realm. And so it's out of God's hands. See, in the beginning, God created the law of sowing and reaping, and he set it in motion so that he could multiply good back to his children. And it was never intended to bring evil. God never intended that law to be used that way. But when man sinned, then Satan was able to come in and pervert that law so that evil was multiplied back. Now Jesus is simply stating a fact here that when unforgiveness and bitterness is in our heart, what we've done is we've planted a seed. And the harvest is that we can't possibly have our hearts open to the love and forgiveness of God when it's full of bitterness and unforgiveness. So what happens is we shut the door to God. He doesn't shut that door, we shut it because of what we've sown. Therefore, the next time that we quote the Lord's Prayer, We need to be very keenly aware of the awesomeness of the condition of forgiveness that we're claiming. And I really want to say that again, because I think every time we go through that model prayer, we need to stop and realize that we are quoting the conditions to forgiveness. And we need to be aware of what we're claiming. See, God's forgiveness and man's willingness to forgive they're going to be forever entwined and interlocked. You can't separate them. Now, I'm going to give you a simple definition for forgiveness. Forgiveness is when we have the right in the natural to be angry, and we have the power emotionally to be angry. But when we relinquish that right, that's forgiveness. Now, unforgiveness is just the opposite. It's when we have the right and the natural to be angry and we have the power to emotionally stand there and, and be angry and be resentful. And when we demand that right, that equals unforgiveness. And we're going to find that's what happened to this unmerciful slave. He had the power and the right because a debt was owed to him. But he didn't relinquish that right, so it amounted to unforgiveness. Now the reason that God can demand forgiveness of us is because he had the right to hold our sins against us. A debt was owed to him. He relinquished that right. Now, he not only then can require that forgiveness of us, but he does because there's a spiritual law involved. And it takes the reality of God's forgiveness. It takes the reality of realizing how he settled that account with us for us then to be able to forgive somebody else. That's why it had to be taught first. Now, we said earlier that our willingness to forgive is first internal. The blessing first comes in. It's an internal blessing. In other words, forgiving others is a benefit to self first because it frees us, it sets us free. So the number one benefit of forgiveness then that we found in the Lord's Prayer and here in this parable is that our willingness to forgive others is going to open us up to God's forgiveness. Uh, If we didn't have any other benefit, that one would be worth it all we're going to find that our willingness to forgive is the pivotal point on which our personal forgiveness is hinging. It's that pivotal point. So the first internal blessing is that we get forgiven. Now we said there were two benefits listed that we can get out of this parable. The number two benefit to our willingness to forgive is that it automatically closes that door to the tormentors. And that's worth it. If any of you have ever gotten caught in unforgiveness, and you've gone into the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred and the retaliation, you know how tormenting that is. So one of the benefits that God gives us is the fact that it closes that door when we're willing to forgive. Now, not only do we get forgiven, but I thought, you know, Lord, how good you are to come along then and help us to close that door to the enemy that's just there at the door trying to come in at every possible moment. You know, secular doctors are even finding out that many, many sicknesses can be traced back to that root of bitterness. Because bitterness doesn't hurt the person with whom we're bitter. Bitterness hurts the person that's bitter. Now, one of the tormentors that we seldom mention or we seldom think about is the spirit of control. And I felt like we needed to look at that one and go into a little more depth. There is nothing more tormenting than the forceful strength of a spirit of control on the inside when it's demanding and coercing you to take control of a situation or a person. If you've ever had that, you know that that spirit of control is torment. It will give you absolutely no peace until you push either emotionally or physically or or mentally to make something go the way you want it to go. And then after you have fulfilled the demands of that spirit of control, you know, that's been driving you, there's still no peace because you can't satisfy a spirit. It demands more and more. It's kind of like a loan shark that's just there pushing you further and further. And you may be thinking, well, what does control have to do with unforgiveness? Well, I want us to see the connection because it's very important for us to realize that control is... Control is one of those subtle ways in which we're unforgiving. Now, when we operate in a spirit of control, actually what we're doing, we're judging in our heart that that other party, whether it be another person or whether it be God, we're judging in our heart that that other person is not going to do it right. Right, of course, being our way. We're judging since they won't do it right, we feel like we've got to get in there and control so we'll make it happen our way. Now, even if we don't allow that spirit of control to take over and manifest in the natural, you know, a lot of people are driven by a spirit of control, but they use the arm of flesh and they grit their teeth and they don't allow themselves, you know, to control. But even if we keep that spirit of control pushed down and we don't allow it to operate, if a spirit of control is there on the inside, if it's not renounced, if it's not cast out, if, if we don't come to a place where we're trusting God, then we're going to find out that it's always there in the soulish realm as a negative emotion. And it's going to be there putting pressure and putting stress on us, constantly making us want to control. And that's just as tormenting when that spirit of control is there and you're wanting to control the situation. So we're going to find out that controlling, that spirit of control, is equal judging. It's the same thing as judging. Because, see, we wouldn't want to control if we weren't judging that person to be wrong or fearing that they were going to be wrong. And then that judgment equals unforgiveness. Because as long as we're judging or as long as we're condemning somebody in our heart, we are in unforgiveness of that person. So I really want you to see the evolution here. That control equals judgmental condemnation. Because any time we're judging somebody, we're going to want to control. We wouldn't want to control them if we weren't judging them to be wrong. And then anytime we're judging or condemning somebody, we're in unforgiveness. Control is the opposite of trust in God. The only thing that will rid us of that is when we renounce that spirit of control when we don't want it anymore and then we fill that place up with trust. You know, sometimes it feels like we're stepping out on thin ice when we've been used to controlling and all of a sudden we say, No, Lord, I don't want that anymore. I'm trusting you. And all of a sudden we start stepping out on that thin ice. It can feel shaky. But God says, Oh, the torment that we'll close the door to if we'll come to the place where we get in trust. We're going to also find out that a spirit of control robs us of so much of our physical energy. You've seen adults come up and ask a little child a question. And I've seen this happen so many times that the parent of that child will answer for their child out of a fear that their child is not going to answer correctly. I know you've seen that happen, and I've been guilty of that. But the Lord showed me that really is control when we do that. Because see, what happens, that parent is judging that that child's not going to answer the way they think he should. And that's a form of unforgiveness. That's a form of intolerance. You've seen husbands and wives who were afraid that their mate was not going to do what they wanted them to do. So they got into a habit of controlling with their anger. And many times then the mate will go ahead and give in to it simply because they get afraid of the anger. See, that control comes from intolerance and unforgiveness toward the mate because that person is judging that his mate or her mate is not going to do what he or she wants them to do. So what they do, they come in and they control with the anger. Now you've seen children totally in control of a situation when they act up in public and embarrass their parent because when they get used to that, they know that parent's going to give in rather than causing a scene. They're adults as well as adolescents who have learned to hold back affection in order to get their way, and what they've done, they've learned how to control with their love. Now there's also times when people are operating in a spirit of control and they don't realize they are. And so they have to have a revelation from God, a revelation from the word of what they're doing. One particular case were friends of ours from out of town. And the husband had been in another field of work for years, but he decided he was going to change professions. And when he did, he went to work with his wife in a field where she had worked for years. And she knew all the ins and outs of that particular profession. She'd do it in her sleep. She had done it for years. So she wanted her husband to succeed. And she feared that he wouldn't because it was all new to him and she was so afraid that he was not going to be a success. So she came to a place where she controlled every single thing that he did in an effort to help him succeed. And I thought, you know, the motive sounded right. But it's never right because control never brings good fruit because that control, see, equals judging. She judged in her heart that he might fail. And even though it was out of fear, she was still controlling, and that equaled unforgiveness. Because as long as there's condemnation in her heart, even if it's fearful condemnation, what we're doing, we're in unforgiveness of that person, and it's going to bring torment, even if we don't realize what we're doing. We're gonna have to come to a place where we fill up our heart with the things of God. You know, I was watching the news in San Antonio about four years ago, four or five years ago, and there was a businessman, a banker there in San Antonio who came home one night and he found his wife murdered. We knew some of his friends that lived there in San Antonio. And the police finally caught the man So this man explained that he had only intended to rob the house, but as he was tying the woman up, he noticed that she was staring at a tattoo that he had on his arm. And he said, I got worried that she would be able to identify me because of the tattoo. And so he said, I had to kill her. Now the newsmen were interviewing the husband of the murdered woman, and they were asking him how he felt toward his wife's murder. And I thought that his answer was very significant. I meditated on that for so long. He said, I have a huge hole. He said, I, I just have this, this huge emptiness, this void in my life where my wife and I were so close. And he said, now she's gone. And he said, it's left this big emptiness. But he said, I cannot afford to allow hate to fill up that void. Because he said, if I do, it will destroy me. And I thought, you know, there's so much insight there because I thought, you know, he had to have had some kind of walk with God to know that no matter how much he might feel justified, to fill that spot up with hate would be destructive to him. So the number two benefit then of our being willing to forgive is that in cleaning out all these roots of unforgiveness that we have in our life, no matter how subtle they may be, we'll be closing the door to the tormentors. The number three benefit to our willingness to forgive. All of us want to know how to increase our faith. Everybody wants to increase their faith and have their prayers answered. And we know that the word says in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing the word. We also know that the Bible tells us that we can build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the spirit. But I wanna show you something very interesting that we rarely ever notice. Practically every faith scripture in the Word of God will have forgiveness scriptures on either side. And that's not any coincidence. I think we've overlooked a real clue to something that God is telling us in the Word of God that will increase our faith and keep our prayers from being hindered. See, forgiveness and faith are tied together. In fact, some of the strongest faith scriptures in the Bible are tied directly into forgiveness. They're tied directly in. You can't separate them. I want you to go through the Word of God, and I want you to see how many times you find Jesus forgiving the sins of the one that he just healed, or else he'll heal them, and he'll say, Go and sin no more. I want you to look up Mark 11:22. You're familiar with this, but I want us to really realize this author's not changing subjects. He's continuing a thought we can't have one without the other. And Mark eleven twenty two, Jesus is talking about faith. It says, And Jesus answering said to them, Have faith in God, or have the faith of God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Okay, he's talking about mountain-moving faith. And then he says, therefore I say to you all things for which you pray and ask, believe you've received them and they'll be granted to you. And then he goes right on and he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. Like I said, it looks like he changed subjects, but he didn't. He's still talking about faith when he says to forgive because God knows they're tied together. He knows we can't take one without the other. You're familiar with the scripture there in James 5, 14 and 15 where it says, call for the elders of the church. And if you're sick, and they'll anoint you with oil. And the prayer of a righteous man availeth much but it goes right on to say in the same verse, and if they've committed any sins, their sins will be forgiven. We need to come to a place where we program our mind to never again think of faith or think of answered prayer apart from forgiveness. I mean, when we think of increasing our faith, when we think of having our prayers answered, we ought to automatically think in terms of our forgiveness, our willingness to forgive. And since forgiveness is such a key to getting our prayers answered, then every single time you come to a place where you feel like that your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and bouncing right back down, you need to check and see, is there any unforgiveness? Is there any bitterness? Are there any subtle areas of unforgiveness? Are there some areas of control? Any area where I might be judging or condemning another person from my heart? Because these things can be really subtle. We do not have the right to condemn anybody else. Judgmental condemnation equals unforgiveness. Therefore, when we refuse the role of judgmental condemner, it's going to keep us from being condemned. And it's also going to help us to get our prayers answered. It's going to be one area that opens our prayer life up. The number four benefit to our willingness to forgive is that it produces an inner peace. It produces an inner tranquility that produces strength. It literally keeps our physical strength from being robbed. We're so busy in these last days and there's so much going on and and things are happening so much faster that really it takes every bit of the strength we have just to be able to fulfill what we have to fulfill each day, fulfill our obligations. And many times at the end of the day, we're just drained that as we keep all these areas of bitterness and unforgiveness out of the way, we're going to find out that our physical strength is going to start mounting up. We're going to to walk in in a healthier way. Now, I'm going to end with a true story to illustrate this last favor that we do for ourselves when we forgive someone from the heart. Catherine Marshall tells this story about a friend of theirs, and it illustrated the point so well that I wanted to share it with you. I'm going to call the man's name Clint, Clint had started attending a university back in the 1950s, and he met another man that I'll call Victor. And Victor was so unhappy and needed a friend so desperately that Clint decided that he would let him share an apartment with him. Well, it was later that Clint realized that Victor was really emotionally disturbed in a big way, and so he realized that the time had come that he couldn't continue to share the apartment with him but he knew he couldn't turn his back on Victor, so he decided that he'd leave the apartment with Victor and he'd get a room nearby and they could continue being friends. When Clint finally told Victor about the decision that he had made, obviously it just shattered Victor's world and so he began to plead with Clint not to leave. And then when Clint continued to insist that he had to, rage took over. And he came at Clint from behind. Clint had turned his back, and he came from behind with a hammer. They struggled, and Clint was able to get the hammer away from him, but it was not until after he he had hit him several hard blows on the back. Now, all Clint could think about was just to get him over to the door and get him out the door and get the door locked behind him. So he shoved him toward the door, and he started holding him up against the wall so that he could get the door open with the other hand. And as he did, Victor lunged at him and stabbed him with a knife. Now, somehow, Clint was still able to get Victor out the door and and get the door closed and latched. But when he did, he said he looked down and this red, sticky bubbles of blood were coming up through his sweater. He realized that he was having a real hard time breathing, so he realized that his lungs had been punctured. Now, Clint was struggling desperately to keep conscious when the superintendent of the apartments burst in. He had heard the commotion, and so he had a key. He unlocked it and, and came in. He took one horrified look, and he ran off to get help and left the door wide open for Victor to come back in. And sure enough, he did. He came back in, and Clint realized that he didn't have the strength to keep him from finishing off the job. But what happened, Victor began to drag him across the floor and pull him up on the bed, and he asked him for forgiveness. Now, Clint was half-conscious by this time, but he said he could barely open his eyes, but he opened his eyes just in time to see Victor fixing to put the knife in his own chest. And so he said he used every bit of the strength he had left to knock the knife away, and he said he lost consciousness just as he heard himself say, Victor, I forgive you. Now, the surgeon had never seen a worse case. He said that he had five deep knife wounds, and his lungs were rapidly filling up with blood, and he was in this deep state of shock. The surgery took about eight hours. Several times while he was on the operating table, they had to stop and just desperately work to try to keep Clint alive. Now, for a week after that surgery, Clint literally hung by a thread between life and death. Both of his lungs had been punctured and collapsed, and he said that the pain was unbearable. He couldn't move because they were afraid it would start him hemorrhaging. And he said that he would just gasp for breath that was very slow in coming, and, and then fear would try to take over. And he would lie there motionless hour after hour, and all that was going through his mind was, what about this business of forgiveness? I don't know that I can do this. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. Did I really mean what I said to Victor? Do I mean it now? Can I really be in forgiveness of him? And he said that he was just in torment as as he was going back and forth over the words that kept ringing in his ear, that he had said, Victor, I forgive you. And in the midst of all that struggle, as he was trying to make a decision, if he really did forgive him, Clint heard that Victor was building his case on the basis of self-defense. And he had decided that since Clint's fingerprints were on the hammer that he was going to say that Clint had come at him with a hammer and in self-defense then he had struck him with a knife. Now Clint labored over that decision to forgive. And he knew inside of himself there was absolutely no way that he could do it. He knew that the resentment and the anger and the hurt and the bitterness were just trying to engulf him. It was such a temptation, he said, to compare Victor's conduct to his own conduct. And I thought, you know, many, many times that's exactly what we do. When we're in unforgiveness, what we're really doing, there's a little bit of pride there because we're comparing how we've acted compared to how they acted. But finally, Clint said that he came to the decision, yes, Lord, forgiveness is costly. It costs Jesus a lot. And I'm going to forgive, not with my feelings. I can't do that. But I'm going to lay all my resentment and all of the bitterness and all the anger on the altar. And I'm going to allow Jesus to do the rest. And he said that all this had been going on inside of his mind. And the only thing that he had the strength to get out was just out loud. He said, he whispered, yes, Victor, I forgive you. And he said immediately. He said uh, that miracle took place, and he said there was just an explosion of peace on the inside of him. Any unforgiveness, any anger at all, he said that negative emotion would have sapped so much of your energy that you would not have pulled through. He said that's what we've been fighting ever since the surgery. Now, Clint pondered that for a long time because he realized how close he came to, to literally losing his life because of the unforgiveness. Now we may not have two punctured lungs. We may not be in a situation where our immediate condition looks that critical. But I really prayed and I really thought on that and I believe that the Lord showed me that our condition is just as critical as Clint's was. Because the unforgiveness will tip the scale in any one of us. And that negative emotion, if we leave it there, will sap so much of our energy that we're going to find that different areas of death will begin to show up in our physical condition. It may not show up immediately, might not show up quite as immediately as Clint's would have, but it shows up in a hurry because it definitely affects us every single time. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, Please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.